0: Hello there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Helen Bones. She's a research associate in digital humanities at Western Sydney University. She's here to talk about her new book, The Expatriate Myth, New Zealand Writers and the Colonial World. It's published by Otago University Press in 2018. Helen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well,
0: it's great to have you on. So, Helen, I want to start with The Literary Expatriate. Um, what is it, how should we define it, how has it been defined, and what issue did you take with the term?
1: Okay, well I suppose a literary expatriate is someone who has been um, forced to leave wherever they're from in order to pursue their career in literature, or I guess not necessarily forced, but just someone who's moved from where they started out to somewhere else in order to further their career. Um, as opposed to just an expatriate in general, which is, in the broader definition, just means someone who lives somewhere other than where they're from. So I suppose I'm being more specific using that term than perhaps the broader term.
0: So you say in the book that you are taking a deliberately contrary position. What what do you think about the usefulness of the category of expatriate to explain these writers' experiences?
1: Well, when I started out doing the research, which was originally for my PhD thesis, um, I was interested in the idea of expatriatism, which, according to kind of mythology, if I can call it that, um, surrounding New Zealand literature, was a really important aspect of New Zealand writing because it was generally in the early 20th century necessary for writers to leave and thus become expatriates if they wanted to become writers. Um, and this is generally presented as a sort of negative thing, meaning that these writers were lost to New Zealand literature and then occupied this category of an expatriate. And I believe that this is a, just a really unnecessary generalisation because, as most people know, um, human life is not doesn't fit so easily into these kind of categories. So writers that are described as expatriates might have only gone away for a short amount of time or they might have not necessarily intended to leave forever when they left New Zealand. Um, They might have come back and so it's just not a very helpful category for deciding things about these writers and how their lives worked and what kind of contribution they made to New Zealand literature in my opinion.
0: How did the image of the kind of archetypal New Zealand writer as an exiled expatriate get created? You said that you say that there are um, you know, were these cultural nationalists that seem to have been very influential?
1: Well, so the the archetypical idea of the New Zealand writer overseas, I suppose, centres around people like Catherine Mansfield, who's the most famous example. And she very famously um, was desperate to leave New Zealand and wanted to go and live in London and have, you know, an exciting life of a writer. She, in my opinion, she's an anomaly when it comes to New Zealand writers and most of the writers who left in fact um, weren't necessarily intending to reject New Zealand forever, um, didn't necessarily have such a kind of gripe with what they were offered um, while they were in New Zealand. And where where I think this idea came from is centered around the kind of narrowing of what it meant to be a New Zealand writer and what New Zealand literature was that happened in the mid 20th century um, with these cultural nationalists that you mentioned. Um, They kind of prescribed a very narrow idea about what New Zealand literature should relate to, um, meaning that it should relate to New Zealanders alone and kind of express the essence of what it meant to be a New Zealander. So the idea of overseas publishing and writers who went overseas was kind of a problem for them because that meant having to write possibly for other audiences, not just New Zealanders. Um, So that and the fact that they were interested in fostering local publishing meant that People who were overseas or were publishing overseas kind of became problematized and their contributions obscured in a lot of ways.
0: So tell us a little bit about kind of the the reading public in early 20th century New Zealand. You you kind of write against this stereotype that there was a lack of interest in local culture at the time. Maybe tell us a little bit about that.
1: I think that comes from, again, this idea that people who were overseas and people who published overseas didn't count when it came to, like if you were counting up all the New Zealand books and all the contributions to literature, you kind of miss out those ones. So that's partly where this idea that in, in the early 20th century, New Zealand was just kind of a vacuum when it came to culture has come from. But also, um, even in my own book, what I did was I counted publications, so published books, and that kind of ignores all the other literary endeavours that were going on at the time. So there was a really healthy newspaper culture where writers would start out writing in newspapers. There were attempts at literary periodicals, even though most of them weren't hugely successful. And there were other kind of cultural um, groups and associations that people had set up really early on from when they first came out from um, Britain or wherever they came from. Um so this idea that kind of when when the colonists came out from Britain, they had to start again, and so it took them a really long time to get going, doesn't make sense because they, they brought it all out with them and they kind of hit the ground running when it came to um, recreating their culture. And I think they were also almost kind of um, more interested in creating it because they were worried about being left behind. Being so far away from where the kind of culture had originated from.
0: I want to ask you about two places that Australian writers, um, you know, went to. Uh, One, of course, was was nearby to Australia, and then uh, London was a key publishing center. So, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the mobility between New Zealand and and those two places, and what it meant for these writers?
1: It was very common to move around, kind of within. I call it um, the colonial writing world. which was made possible by these continuing networks, which had been created by, obviously, the British colonial expansion into Australia and New Zealand and elsewhere as well. Um, and particularly in the case of Australia and New Zealand, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the two communities were much more interlinked than they are today, especially in the case of literary communities, Um, a lot of writers just kind of saw the whole area as their domain for publishing and a lot of them moved between the two countries as well so there was this you know, continued flow of ideas and publications and people and I see this as kind of a smaller microcosm of the broader colonial world which centred around London so People commonly travelled back to London or back to Britain and spent some time there, often writing. Um, And this wasn't necessarily a huge sort of rejection of New Zealand. It was just um, a way to experience perhaps the um, metropolitan culture from close up, and they still remained closely connected to New Zealand in many cases through these same networks. So, again, it's kind of the expatriate experience is often ex- um, expressed as a kind of an outward permanent um, flow from New Zealand. And this ties into these ideas about brain drain and all these kind of um, these fears of losing talent to overseas. But it was usually more of a, a circular motion or kind of several circles. So people travelled around the colonial world, and it wasn't necessarily such a big deal as some people might make out.
0: I want to ask you about indigenous uh, peoples. I mean, the writers who came to New Zealand, um, you know, they they interacted with these indigenous populations, which could offer kind of a a unique story, unique content. Were people interested in in that sort of story?
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so within Australia and New Zealand in the early 20th century, um, New Zealand was known as Maori land because, well, I think that was just an Australian nickname for New Zealand. Um, I'm not quite sure where that came from. But there's a book written about this era of writing and the school of writing where um, writers borrowed a lot of aspects of Maori culture to kind of give their writing a sense of place and sort of try and find their own indigeneity, which is obviously quite problematic in terms of cultural appropriation, but it's, it's a definite kind of trend in writing at the time. And in terms of publishing overseas, rather than having to pander to foreign um, ideas and kind of losing their, this New Zealandness, ness um, this kind of writing was very popular overseas, um, these sort of tales of exotic places and colonial stories and all this sort of stuff. So um, that all comes across quite strongly if you're looking at the books that were published in the United Kingdom and also the reviews of those books, often perhaps a book that didn't have a lot of literary merit would have been seen as having some merit because it had these interesting themes that people wanted to read about.
0: So of the authors that you looked at, and, and you looked at many, and, and I'll, t- I'll ask you about that in, in a second, but you know, of the ones that you looked at, does uh, gender matter in their experience as expatriate writers?
1: It certainly matters. Um, in the sense that the kind of obstacles that p- people had when it came to writing were different um, depending on what gender they were. So women writers found often that they weren't able to combine having being married and having a family with being writers. So on my list of sort of prominent writers that I've derived a lot of statistics from, there are quite a few women who were unmarried or never married um, throughout their lives, and the things that were constraining them from writing in New Zealand might not have been there if they were traveling overseas, so things like familial obligations and things like that, so um, I guess the way that these things affected them were different um, for men and for women, so yeah, I think it does come into it to an extent but I was looking at all writers not just women writers or male writers so that wasn't my primary focus
0: Yeah, You did compile a, a large data set of writers. Can you tell us a little bit about how you selected them and uh, kind of how you conducted your kind of numerical or statistical analysis?
1: Yeah so what, the main reason I did that was because I wanted a list of books that had been published between 1890 and 1945 which was my time period and there wasn't one that I was satisfied with. There are lists of books, but there was no information necessarily about how they defined, how how they knew that they were New Zealand writers. Um, Often these lists include books about New Zealand, not necessarily written by New Zealanders. And obviously, trying to define what a New Zealander is is entirely arbitrary, because there isn't one answer to that question. So I just came up with a standard definition, which was anyone who had lived in New Zealand for more than 10 years and published a book of poetry, a novel, or short fiction. And so I counted all of those and made a data set from that. And then basically my writers who I was able to get enough um, biographical information about made up my set of um, writers that I did my statistical analysis about their movements, but so I couldn't get this information about quite a few writers because if they just wrote one book that appears in a catalogue there's no other information about them. So I think I had 717 books altogether and 322 writers and then 118 that made it onto my list of um, sort of, I, I called them prominent writers, I think.
0: So so that's a kind of a large number of writers. let's zoom in on one in particular. Who is an author that you think kind of you know their their story or, or the, the story we tell about them changes if we view them as a New Zealand writer um, when we hadn't before?
1: That's an interesting question. I suppose most of the writers that I looked at are not necessarily not seen as New Zealand writers, but they're not appreciated in their entirety so perhaps um, some of the ones who went to Australia and became really involved in Australian literary circles if you read their biographies or like, their entries in the um, encyclopedia of New Zealand literature things like that um, what people are interested in is what they did in terms of New Zealand so their New Zealand writing um, And then if you look at the Australian counterparts, what they're interested in is what they did for Australia. So there's no kind of overall view of what their life and contribution was to literature. Um, And writers I'm thinking of are people like Douglas Stewart and Arthur H. Adams, who are well known in Australia but came from New Zealand originally.
0: Helen, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Helen Bones from Western Sydney University. Her new book is The Expatriate Myth. New Zealand Writers, and the Colonial World. It's published by Otago University Press in 2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.